0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Corinthians 11:16 through 12:10. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. And exposure. And, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aratas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is God's word. Please be seated.
1: Well, may I thank you very much for the warm welcome to Wheaton College Church. It's a tremendous privilege to be here. I feel I know Wheaton College Church well already because my predecessor, Dick Lucas, has spoken so warmly of the church family here and the work here. And uh, I bring you greetings from him, and not only from him, but also from St. Helens as well. And the more I see of Wheaton, the more I think and hope that we're very much on the same page. I must uh, also confess that uh, I'm enormously grateful to you for conferring on me a doctorate overnight. And uh, I I, I need to mention that it's probably the least deserved and most unlikely in the history of academia. So uh, amazing to be given the title Dr. William Taylor. Let me lead us in prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we praise you that the unfolding of your word gives light and that it imparts understanding to the simple. We come to you, our Father, very conscious of our own simplicity and our own personal darkness outside of the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would enlighten us enliven us, and make us wise. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The subject I want to address this morning is something that fascinates us all. It's valued, sought after, and fought over. Every election is about it. Millions of dollars are spent on it. Wars are fought over it. It's an issue in every boardroom, classroom, wardroom, The subject I want us to consider for a few moments is that of power. But I don't want us to think about fleeting, passing, limited, ephemeral human power. I want us to consider ultimate power, divine power, God's power. That is our subject for these few moments this morning. And I want us to consider what I'm going to call the paradox of divine power. And I want to suggest that it is an issue that is important to every one of us who, after all, does not want, if they're belonging to the Lord Jesus, to be part of a church that uh, engages in ministry with the power of God, who does not want to experience the power of God. And if you're here as somebody looking into the Christian faith, and I hope there might be many people uh, here doing that, I can't think of any better place to come, you'll want to know, well, where really do you find the power of God? And the point that we're going to be looking at this morning is that God's mighty power rests on, is experienced in, and demonstrated through the context of abject human weakness and frailty. This is the extraordinary economy, if you like, of divine power. In fact, I want to go further than that because I think our text goes further than that. I think what God wants us to see more than that, I want us to see that when and as God works in mighty power, he deliberately acts to ensure that the human vessels through whom he works feel and often appear weak, frail, and inadequate. And let me say my aim up front, I think it's always helpful. I think it's Paul's aim, actually, in this reading, in this letter His aim and my aim, therefore, is that we boast in and are content with the power of God. Now, this is a point that we find. uh, It is actually, I have to say, a primary school one. I don't know if you have primary school one, key stage one, kind of nursery school lesson. And so I feel slightly shy bringing it to Wheaton College Church. But actually, in today's age, where there is such misunderstanding about power and authentic power it is a very important reminder to us. We find it in our passage, in the key verses at the end of the passage, which really are the key verses of our study. Verse 9 of chapter 12. Please turn there to Corinthians 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's there. And then in the next statement in Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then, in the final verse, the final sentence, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, actually, when you pause and think about it biblically, you find this everywhere. Think of Samson what a picture of frailty! What power! Think of Gideon. Do you remember that wonderful verse, Gideon? I'm the weakest in the whole of Israel and my clan is the most pathetic. And yet what power? Think of King David, the last person in the whole family who would have been considered to be God's king and ruler. And yet what power? And ultimately, of course, just across the paragraph there, chapter 13, verse 4, the Lord Jesus was crucified in weakness but lives by the power of God. So here is our our key issue, the paradox of divine power. And I want us to see that when God works in power, he deliberately operates to ensure that we feel and often appear weak. And it's not only in our key verses. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, if you would. Chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. If you flick back to it, you'll see Paul is explaining why he had to change his travel plans. And he says in verse 8, we don't want you to be ignorant of the affliction we suffered. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death. We thought we were going to die. Now, look at the next phrase. But that was, in order that, is what it says literally, we might rely not on ourselves but on God. God worked deliberately to make sure Paul's travel plans failed so that Paul relied upon God. Turn to chapter 4, verse 7, 4-7. We have this treasure in jars of clay in order that it might be seen that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now Paul is talking about here about the treasure of the gospel of God and what a treasure it is. If you turn to trust in Jesus Christ, and there may be some here this morning who don't yet trust in Jesus, through Jesus' death on the cross, as you trust Jesus, God will declare you forgiven, just as you trust Jesus. And God will enter into your life by the power of His Holy Spirit in an unseen way, and He will bring you alive spiritually. What power in the gospel and yet, says Paul, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, the clay jar in the first century was a, 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 a consumer chuckable. I don't know quite what you call them here, but it, the thing, it was just a jar, a jar. Everything was pottery, and you lit your light, you put it in the clay jar, and then you chucked it away when it got cracked or broken. It was the equivalent. I haven't seen many of these things here in Wheaton College Church, but no doubt you have them. It was the equivalent of a kind of plastic cup. Do you run to that sort of thing? I assume everything's China here, but anyway, the sort of thing you you drink out of a Starbucks mug. You drink your coffee, and you, you did you think about the mug you threw away this morning? Now, says Paul, God has put the treasure of the gospel into human vessels that are just plastic cups like you and me. Now, do you see why he's done it? In order that it might be seen that The power and glory is his. And so God works deliberately in all his power to ensure that you and I feel weak. Here is the paradox. Back to our passage, chapter 12, verse 7, because it's very important at this stage. We tackle a couple of key issues to make sure we don't get in a muddle. Look at verse 7 and notice the was given. To keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. So Paul did not go deliberately out of his way to court weakness like some kind of religious masochistic martyr. He he didn't deliberately go out of his way. And then notice from that verse that it was described this, whatever it was, thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. So he's not saying that the weakness is in and of itself good. Good the messenger of Satan. And then look at chapter 12, verse 8, and you will see three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So Paul doesn't glory in suffering itself. He doesn't say, hit me again, this is terrific, please give me some more of it. He's not a kind of maniac. Rather, God is in charge of all hardship and suffering, and he deliberately acts to ensure that the human vessel through whom he works feels and often appears weak and frail. And, of course, we see it most powerfully at the cross. The power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ means that your heart, though naturally spiritually dead, can be brought alive this morning if you don't trust Jesus. As you reach out to trust Jesus and his death on the cross, your sins will be wiped away such that God now sees you as perfect. You're brought alive, a resurrection within your soul. Nobody can see it. It's hidden on the heart. And yet Christ was crucified in weakness. It's clearly evident in Christian ministry. Interestingly, in the the chapter 4, verse 7, in, in the next verses, Paul says that in ministry he is often afflicted and hard-pressed. And, and the word is, you know, like in the James Bond, you, you get James Bond over here? No, no, you don't. Of course you do. I don't believe you. Uh, you, get, you know, in James Bond, you know, the wall gets closer and closer and closer, and, closer, and the last minute somehow he is, he is rescued. And Paul says, in ministry, I feel hard-pressed. My sister has a phrase about how stressed and pressed she is. She talks about how big the room is she's feeling, and if it's a big hall, all is well. If it's a sort of small room, things are pretty tense. If she's in the cupboard under the stairs, metaphorically, it's really tough. And Paul says, I feel hard-pressed all the time in ministry. And then perplexed, you know, Monday morning, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to cope with the rest of the week in ministry. I don't know how we're going to do it, and yet not at a loss persecuted, knocked down but not knocked out. And of course it is most plain, isn't it, in death, weakness in death. And yet if you belong to Jesus, life. And I want to ask you, and again it's a bit cheeky to come all the way from England to ask you this, I want to ask you this question, do you really believe it? It's a question I frequently ask us at St. Helens. We're very similar to Wheaton. I would like to think we're similar to Wheaton. And the question I'll frequently ask at St. Helens is, do we really believe it? Or are we Corinthian? Because in worldly Corinth, style not substance was the order of the day. Corinth was a celebrity culture. Corinth was Well, they glorified worldly wisdom and human power, and they took great pride in in human rhetoric. It was plagued Corinth by worldly Christian teachers, teachers who are described as false apostles, super apostles, and the super apostles boasted about each other and their qualifications and, no doubt, their doctorates, whether real or fake. (laughs) They boasted in their human power, their rhetorical skill. I've planted this many churches. I've got an online following of so many thousand. I lead a church of X number. I, I'm, I speak for the Y generation or whatever it happens to be. You've heard it all before. Style, not substance, was the order of the day. And because Paul appeared so weak and frail, frequently had to change his travel plans, was not actually A gifted orator. Look at eleven six. I am an. an, I am unskilled in speaking. Some uh, uh, think, well, he's not really spiritual. He doesn't appear all glitzy. And Paul is wanting them to the Corinthians to understand that with the gospel, that is an unseen message that does an initially unseen work in the heart of the believer. You can't see it on the face. It's not the glamour and glitz, it's the reality of the truth of the Word. And the Corinthian church have become altogether worldly in the way they judge things. A, a, a friend of mine actually did, did, uh, has got a PhD in history, and his was in ancient Greek culture. And uh, um, we were looking at this passage together, and he said to me that um, in the fifth century in Greece... Oratory, powerful speaking, was very much the order of the day. And in the first century, they had a kind of retro movement where they were trying to get back to the f- fifth century in, in Greek culture. And uh, he told me about some guy who used to pack the auditoria. He used to pack the, 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 the um, uh, theaters and what have you. And this was his name. You can just picture him being introduced. You know, this morning our speaker is, here's his name, Lucius Vibilius, Hipparchus Tiberius, Claudius Atticus Herodes. And then the fanfare, and up he comes to the front. And it's not hard there, is it hard to see, therefore, why the Corinthian church that has drifted from the weakness and what appears to be the folly of the cross, which is an unseen thing, want their speakers and their churches to be altogether worldly? How contemporary. The more we learn of the first century Corinth, the more from Paul's letter, it closely resembles 21st century Western culture. Now, I can't speak for American culture. I can tell you a thing or two about England. We live in the age of image awareness of public relations departments and market-driven mass media. Do you live in that kind of age over here? We think it came from you, actually, but we won't go into (laughs) details on that. I don't know if you have this here, but in in England... uh, Sort of secular comedians can pack vast stadia with tens of thousands of people night after night after night to amuse and entertain them. And our political culture is largely policy light, marketing heavy. What will a worldly church look for in 21st century Corinthian London? Comedians entertainers, ministries that seem to be powerful on the face of it. The first century uh, church of Corinth had abandoned the cross. It was too weak and foolish. We learn that from chapter 1. And therefore, by two Corinthians, they are looking for powerful orators, clever rhetoricians, And Paul's ministry, clothed as it is in weakness, sickness, failed travel plans, poor speaking skills, they're not looking to see the content, the gospel. They're looking for the style, not the substance. And I wanted to see that as God works in power, he deliberately locates his powerful word in weak vessels like you and me. More than that, he deliberately keeps us weak, to ensure that it's His power and His glory. Now, here's my question. Do we believe it? What do we boast in? What are we confident about? What are we content with? Uh, not that Paul goes deliberately out of his way to court human weakness. Not that weakness and suffering are in of themselves good. No, he's a messenger of Satan. Not that Paul glories in his suffering. Hit me again. I love this weakness. He prays three times. What do you boast in really? Paul says, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of God may dwell in me. So Paul, in this famous speech of his, goes out of his way in the fool's speech to speak of his weakness. Now we need to understand the sort of double way in which he's speaking. They've made him out to be a fool. He's not a clever speaker. And so says Paul, what, you think I'm a fool? Okay, let me boast like a fool would boast. I, I, I shouldn't really do it because you shouldn't boast like this because God's power is not made perfect like this. I, but allow me, if I'm going to get a hearing amongst you, you first century worldly Corinthians, I have to boast. So I'm going to boast, but let me be sure that you know that I'm boasting as a fool. Look at verse 16 of chapter 11. Follow with me, would you? 11:16. I repeat Let no one think me foolish, but even if you do think me foolish, accept me as a fool for a moment, so that I too may boast a little what I'm saying with this bowful confidence. I say not with the Lord's authority. I'm talking as a fool. But since many boast according to the flesh, you Corinthians, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being so wise yourself. You bear it if someone makes a slave of you, devours you, takes advantage of you, puts on air, strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we, we were too weak for that. And you then get two sections of boasting. One, Paul boasts about his ecstatic experience, that's in chapter 12. And in the other, he boasts about his normal experience of ministry. And in both sections, he cannot bring himself to complete Boasting, the way he begins. So just look at chapter 12, verse 20. Ch- chapter 11, sorry, chapter 11, verse 21. Whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? Listen to my qualifications. So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Well, here's my resume. I'm a better one. And now look, I'm talking like a madman. And you can, you can imagine Paul's followers in the congregation in Corinth saying, go on, Paul. I don't know how you would say it in, uh, in America, but, you know, go for it. Tell us how many churches you planted. Tell us the thousands you've spoken to. Tell us about the gospel advance in the Mediterranean. Tell us what a hit you are. But he's talking like a madman. He says he can't go on like that, and so he starts to boast of his weakness. And you can see it there in verse 23, I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked for a day and a night. I was adrift at sea like Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, in the Titanic. Didn't you think, well, why don't you just push him under, for goodness sake? It's gone on far too long. But uh, Paul was day and night, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, and so on. And then he gets down to verse 30. He went, if I must boast, I'll boast the things that show my weakness, So I went to Damascus to plant a church, and I ran away, is effectively what he's saying. And then he begins again on his ecstatic experience, but he can't go on and tell us about his ecstatic experience. He has to tell us about his weakness, say, so tells us about his thorn in the flesh. It's as if he's saying, Look, you Corinthians, you cross light Corinthians. Don't you know how God works? This is key stage one. These false teachers, they, they charge high fees, they claim to go from one position of strength to another, they've not suffered. They've not seen setbacks. I wonder if they're servants of Christ at all. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. Now, here's our question. Here is a question for you to think about. And again, I often ask this at St. Helens. Would we have gone to a church led by the Apostle Paul? He taught the gospel. Suffering and weakness was the norm. The speaker on Sunday wasn't particularly gifted. The numbers were small. The people who came were not the movers and shakers. He tried to start a church. He thought we'd do it at a congregational plant. It failed. The website wasn't the best in the business. He was opposed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. It was such hard work. He was hard-pressed. He was perplexed. Persecution knocked down but not knocked out. Of course, he didn't court it. He didn't say, I'm going to try and set up the worst website I can. Let's see if we can get the choir to sing out of tune this week, or let's build the most shambolic building we can. can." He didn't court it, nor did he glory in it. He prayed three times to be taken away from him. But this powerful gospel which which brings eternity into view for us, which gives us a place in the new creation, if only we will turn to Jesus, that brings our dead spiritual hearts alive and frees us from the bondage of the world, the flesh, and the devil. This powerful gospel begins at the cross and is embodied in plastic cups and plastic cup ministries. The paradox of divine power, wherever God works in divine power, he deliberately acts to make sure that you and I feel weak. There's a ministry magazine that comes out in England that I now consign immediately to the trash bin. Do you call it the trash bin? You do. It's the waste paper basket, I think, where I come from, but that's what we call it, the trash can. I immediately put it in the bin because it's full of kind of glitzy, glamorous people. Success stories, advance here and advance there, and people in white jackets with shiny teeth. And I, mean, I find it so depressing because that's just not what ministry is like if it's real gospel ministry. How different Paul is, I will boast in weakness. Do we think it is because of our money, our clever strategic thinking, our wonderful communication skills the oratory of our leaders, how how silly and how foolish we are. I frequently find myself thinking, how am I going to cope in ministry over this next couple of weeks? Uh, We we plant churches like you do at St. Helens, but every single church plant, as I think back over them, every single one, there has been a moment where you think this is is simply not going to go. There's been such a major setback I reckon every six months or so, something hits us at St. Helens. Not everybody knows about it. Maybe we should be more open about it. Something hits us at St. Helens. You think, I don't think we're going to recover from that. How will we ever keep going? You think about our staff team. You know, I know what happens is people stand up on a Sunday morning and think, everybody think oh, things must be hunky-dory for them. But as I think about our own staff team, I know that there's one family. I don't know how they keep going. They have such trouble at home. Somebody else, you know, lovely lad, struggling in a particular area, really battling, thank God, with victory at the moment, but really battling, you think, how does he cope with that? Somebody else, grief and sadness, some long-standing thorn in the flesh. I think one of the problems in England is that we're so English. You uh, you probably think that. You think the English are so English. In one sense, I'm glad you do. It'd be rather a pity if we were sort of Irish or something like that. But... (laughs) You know in the Battle of Waterloo, where the film, you know, where um, the guy, the commanding officer, rides back from the charge and Wellington says, my goodness, sir, you appear to have lost your leg. And he looks down and he says, oh my goodness, I, so I do. And then rides on, as if, you know, nothing had particularly happened. Actually, the real story is that that night, he went, well, he, that immediately he went to the hospital and they had a long discussion as to whether to save the leg or not. Surgeon then amputated, that night Wellington went to visit this particular individual and the leg was standing propped up in the corner now. And Wellington and the commanding officer then discussed for 40 minutes where it, whether it might possibly have been saved after all. And uh, I thought you'd enjoy that particular detail on Mother's Sunday. But, um, you know, we're so English. We're so sort of, how are you? I'm absolutely fine. And we're not very good. I, I'm not suggesting that we sort of exult in victimhood, poor me syndrome. But isn't it easy to give the impression that actually we go from one strength to the next? What do you boast in? It, it will impact, you see, what kind of ministry you're prepared to engage in. If, if you boast in a worldly way, as the world does, we see it on our telly, don't we? I mean, your telly is much the same as ours, pretty ghastly. And if you boast in all the things that... You know, the, the, the world, the pagan world boasts in. Well, when you come across the weakness of real Christian ministry, you'll want something more glitzy, glamorous, wise. Would you have gone to church with the Apostle Paul? And it leads us to uh to the last point, it's just worth considering. What are we content with? Gl- glance down at verse seven. For one final time The thorn, we don't know quite what it was the thorn in the flesh, his eyes, his temperament, his heartache at the false teachers, some other physical disability. we don't disability. We don't know. nobody tells us, and I think that's quite nice. It could be one thing here, one thing there, one thing there. But he has this perpetual agony that dogs him. It was given him by God. It's under God's control. It's a messenger of Satan. It's not in of itself good. And you'll see there in verse 7 twice, to keep me from being too elated, to keep me from being too elated. Paul is dreading the next fortnight. Paul only just made it into the pulpit this Sunday. Paul is exhausted. Paul is sick, low. Paul is set back by some unforeseen event. Paul, Paul's travel plans have failed. He thought he was going to do this, but actually it's all fallen to bits. Uh, he spent so long with these people, but now they're nowhere. I have at home a heresy shelf um, where I keep books that uh, you know are so self evidently wrong that uh, they need to be put well out of view. I know there are a few authors here, and uh, let me assure you, as far as I know, none of, you know, I, none of your books are to be found. <laughs> anyway, it's on the left, as you, go in, as you go into my study, it's just down there on the left, and, and two books particularly spring to mind. Uh, a book uh, called Lord, I Need a Miracle by Benny Hinn, in which he suggests that if you haven't been healed, there's something wrong with your faith. He would rewrite this verse, wouldn't he? I boast in my power. Another one, your best life now? Or was it his best life now? I think it comes out of somewhere in America. I think your best life now? He would rewrite this, wouldn't he? Weakness? There must be something wrong with you spiritually. Some of the most effective Christian leaders I know suffer depression, have deep personal sadnesses in their family, struggle with their own apparent lack of human qualifications. And the thing is, if you don't understand this, you will never be content with real Christian ministry. You'll want to move somewhere else. You'll go off on a church plant or start some new congregation, and you'll get some setbacks. you say, oh, this can't be right. You'll engage in ministry at the school gate. You know, you're a mum or a dad at the school gate. You're trying to reach, obviously, because if you're a Christian, you will be. Other people with the Christian gospel, it gets tough. This can't be Right? You're at work in your, your office, in your firm, your company, and you're trying to share the Christian gospel with your colleagues. Of course you are. I hope you are. If you're a Christian, of course you are. And it's, you get a setback. Oh, this can't be right. I, I'm not gonna... it, it suddenly doesn't become very comfortable to be living in downtown Chicago, trying to start some Christian ministry there. Oh, this can't be right. You won't be content with real Christian ministry, you'll give up, you'll lose heart. Um, I'm a country boy, and uh, um, my heart is really in the country. I know I'm supposed to love the city. Um, you're, I think you're supposed to love people in Christian ministry, not necessarily where you've been put by God. I don't particularly like London. So I sometimes find myself thinking, oh, it must be all right for those people who leave us to go and live in the Cotswolds. You know, the Cotswolds, sort of soft beige hue of the stone and doves cooing in the dovecote. It's the kind of Wisconsin, I suppose, of... Uh, <laughs> Uh, is it? I I was in Wisconsin yesterday. What a beautiful place. And I sometimes think to myself, well, you know, in moments of folly, I think to myself, wouldn't it be so much easier to go off to the Cotswolds? And then I say to myself, no, God deliberately, when he works in power, ensures that those through whom he works will experience frailty and weakness. So, William, if you move to the Cotswolds, you will probably put Rats in the attic or something like that <laughs> to keep you on your knees. Well, my job is finished. Uh, I think sometimes congregations, not here, um, but uh, sometimes congregations can just get a bit sort of idle. And they think that the preacher's job is to explain the Bible and then, you know, we all go home and have lunch and, uh, you know, discuss what he was wearing or something. I don't, I don't know what. And, uh, but really, actually, our job begins. So your work begins now. I mean, I hope you've been working as we've been going on, but now the congregational work, we begin seriously to talk this through. What impact is this going to have on college church, this particular piece of truth? And I know you study these things in your small groups in the week. Wonderful. Here are two questions. Would you have gone to church led by the Apostle Paul? why don't you ask each other over coffee? W- would you have gone to a church led by the Apostle Paul, do you think? And if the answer is, well, no, I, I don't think, I I'm, I'm would be a bit nervous going to one of those kind of churches. It all looks a bit tough and difficult and too many setbacks. Then you say, and, and, and why, why do you think that might be? And the second question, would you have been prepared to stick long-term In this ministry led by the Apostle Paul? Or or would you have looked for what I think people call an out, something more comfortable? Let's pray together. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. We also are weak in him. We praise you, our Father, for the extraordinary power of the gospel, that as we trust Jesus, you bring us alive, you wash us clean, you flood your Holy Spirit into our hearts, you secure a place in heaven for us, You enable us to start living for you. Help us to boast in the weakness of the cross and the apparent folly of the cross so that we might know its power and wisdom. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.